Anniversary weekend, and I should first apologise for the fact it seems extraordinarily cold in here. Um, yeah. If you want to sort of get up and kind of run around, the uh, panel will uh, will uh, recognise why you're doing it, or else you could uh, hug the person next to you, which would be uh, also acceptable. Um, but um, it seems that there's nothing much we can do about it. I don't quite know why. Uh, the theme of this evening's event is, uh, as the title suggests literature as social commentary, looking back to the origins of the LSE, which was founded by a group of people, a number of whom, of course, were powerful literary figures in their own right. In fact, the school held its first lectures on the lower floors of a house in a Delphi terrace, rented by Charlotte Payne Townsend, who married George Bernard Shaw in 1898. And indeed, Shaw and the LSE shared uh, premises before the school moved to Houghton Street in 1909. And indeed, in the epilogue to Pygmalion, Eliza Doolittle is sent to the school to get a commercial education. You can't really do that now. All you can do is learn about finance, at least for the moment, um, until that dies out. Um, Beatrice Webb, of course, was closely linked to the school, as was H.G. Uh, Wells. More recently, the LSEs featured in plays and television programs. In Night and Day by Tom Stoppard, there's an African president remembering his days at the LSE where he said, freedom with responsibility. That was the elusive formula we pondered all those years ago at the school. But he also claims to have learned everything about economic theory. It has proved a great handicap. <laughs> the famous uh, Jim Hacker in Yes Minister uh, is an LSE graduate. And I found when I chaired the Booker Judges two years ago that literature was alive and well among more recent graduates. In fact, uh, three of the uh, submitted novels in that year were by LSE alumni. Uh, Pat Barker, of course, uh, very well known, has won the prize in the past, and her last novel, Life Class, uh, was in the submissions in that year. But there was also a Nairin Gareth Thomas, uh, who uh, had an entertaining reminiscence of misspent childhood in South Wales called Luggage from Elsewhere, which was a rather romantic book, I think a bit too romantic for the judges it turned out, but um, curiously he did logic, philosophy and scientific method here. Um, and also Jessica Gregson um, with a fascinating imagined village in Hungary around the time of the First World War um, called Angel Makers and I can uh, commend uh, all of those three actually, they're all rather good novels published in 2007. And indeed, one of the entries was set partly in the LSE, and that's a book called My Revolutions by Harry Kunzru, um, which is about the Angry Brigade, a group of sort of milk and water urban guerrillas, at least by comparison with the Bader-Meinhof at the time, who once attempted to put a bomb under the car of the then Home Secretary. And for some of them, their formative years were spent here at the school, and indeed in the book, there is a memorable scene in which they occupy the director's office. And <laughs> uh, now you may think it unwise for me to mention this in case I sort of encourage people to go and do that uh, <coughs> later this evening. But in fact, from my point of view, it was rather a good cautionary tale because the main character, the leader of this group, takes advantage of his evening lying on the floor of the director's office uh, to have a quick fling with one of his fellow occupiers, a rather drab but available girl who has drifted in from somewhere else, and he ends up with a sexually transmitted disease. Um, so beware the floor in my office. Um, now, of course, 
This does rather play to what is perhaps a slightly dated reputation the school has, um, but that reputation sticks with us because just after the Iraq invasion, Vanity Fair in a uh, part of that um, magazine called Vanities, which has, actually has literary bits in it and sort of fantasies in it, uh, at that time it included a spoof questionnaire supposedly from the Pentagon surveying Iraqi citizens about their attitude to the invasion. The aim was to see if they would recommend the services of the US military to other countries in need of regime change. And the questions you get were the sort you get on surveys, in other words, age, sex, employment history, and all that, and then included a question at the end about educational attainment, where it said, was your highest educational attainment A, primary school, B, secondary school, C, Al-Qaeda training camp in Afghanistan, or D, the London School of Economics? <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, a few clues to uh, the LSE's uh, traditions and to our role in literature and indeed in uh, social and political commentary. Uh, but I'm hoping for uh, some much more challenging observations from our three panelists. Um, we couldn't think of a, jo a jolly good way of doing this except alphabetical, so we're going to hear from uh, Mosin Hamid first. Uh, Mosin, uh, of course, was shortlisted uh, by the uh, Booker judges, uh, so he owed me one uh, coming here this evening, and uh, for his novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, uh, also wrote a previous novel called Moth Smoke, which is about sex and drugs and rock and roll in Karachi, um, and um, has uh, acquired quite a stellar reputation both here and on the other side of the uh, Atlantic. Uh, then, of course, we will have uh, David Hare, um, a very distinguished uh, dramatist, the most recent play Gethsemane, also did the screenplay uh, for The Reader uh, very recently, uh, but of course has a list of plays as long as your arm, and then uh, at the end, uh, Boyd Tonkin, the literary editor of The Independent. So, without more ado, question. Thank you. Um, you know, I guess a short answer to is, is what I write, <coughs> social commentary, uh, is, is yes. Uh, you know, what I write is social commentary, at least partly social commentary, or at least my first two novels have involved quite a bit of social commentary. But it's probably worth just talking about um, why, you know, why fiction at all uh, for this purpose. And I'll tell you two stories. The first one was shortly after September 11th, uh, I was writing for a major American uh, publication, uh, an essay about my parents and sister who were in Islam at the time. And they were waiting for uh, the impending war in Afghanistan. At the time, the Taliban were threatening to launch rockets in Pakistan in retaliation for Pakistan, supporting the US invasion of Afghanistan through use of, of bases in Pakistan, etc. And so they were worried. And there was a moment when my mother uh, looked over. Uh, she was sitting in a restaurant, and she saw uh, Christian Amanpour sitting uh, at the table next to her. And she said, you know, we're all going to die. Because Krishna Manpur showed up in Somalia and he showed up in Bosnia and he showed up in Islamabad. <laughs> and you know, they said, This is it, this is the end. You know, we know what towns where she shows up and look like a month later. And, uh, and I was writing about this and, and I was writing an essay. Um, and in that essay, I said something about uh, anger towards the United States. Not my anger, but an environment of anger uh, in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan um, into which 
which was the context for any discussion about why September 11th happened and what the consequences of the retaliation to it might entail, etc. And this uh, publication asked me to take this paragraph out. And they said, you know, take it out because it's very soon after September 11th and uh, we you know, don't think that uh, people are ready to hear this. And, uh, and this was, a, I think, a fairly, uh, for me, uncontroversial sort of assertion that there is this anger. And, without, and I wasn't attempting to legitimize the anger or claim it for myself, but just to identify it as something which existed. And, uh, and I think that little act of, of censorship, because there's no other real word for it, uh, multiplied by a million articles over several years, creates an enormous you know, gap and vacuum in commentary. And the consequences of that, those sorts of gaps, I think, are all uh, apparent to us all in, in terms of what they do to truth uh, and what they do to outcomes that are ill-informed, uh, that, that follow from excluding certain things from our decision-making. So, so I felt that there was a role in fiction um, to do things and say things that perhaps weren't being said uh, in, in non-fiction, or at least in my non-fiction. And also I thought, uh, and this is the second story I want to tell you, I was um, in Germany some years later, and I was giving a talk there, and people in the audience, uh, repeatedly, several people, said to me, um, you know, uh, you Muslims feel like this, but we Europeans feel like that. And repeatedly this happened, and, uh, and, and at one point I, I removed my newly acquired British passport from my inside jacket pocket and waved it over my head and said, <laughs> you know, while it's true, we British have not yet you know, joined the monetary union, <laughs> surely you don't mean to say that you know, we're not European. And, um, and the reason why I tell you this story is because uh, this attempt to divide us into easy categories, you know, liberal, conservative, communist, capitalist, man, woman, Muslim, European. Um, all of this uh, uh, stems from, I think, a, a, a willful failure of empathy. And what literature can do, what fiction does, is it establishes empathy. Because to write fiction, you have to imagine being someone else or being several other people. And to read it, when you read it, you begin to insert yourself into the narrative of other people. You begin to imagine what other people are feeling. Um, and the last thing I'll say on this before handing it over is, is I think the novel uh, is peculiarly well suited to this task. And the reason for that is that when you see a film, and we'll hear, we'll hear what, uh, uh, what uh, from, from the dramatic arts, I'm sure we'll hear, we'll hear more, but, but my own sense of what the novel does is when you see a film, um, you are seeing something which has been, in a certain sense, more completely imagined for you. Uh, the, the, uh, not that your viewing of a film, um, or a play for that matter, isn't a creative act. It is certainly a creative act to view a film or see a play. But the transformation that happens between looking at a pulped piece of paper with black squiggles on it and seeing, feeling, smelling, believing in actual human beings running around is enormous. And that transformation happens in your mind, the minds of readers. And that co-creative aspect of reading a book, um, to me, is a, is a profoundly empathetic one. 
And in that sense, very important because social commentary without empathy is, is often not particularly effective. Um, when we allow ourselves to imagine what it is to be someone else and we transcend the boundaries of being ourselves, um, we open ourselves up to potentially different ways of looking at things. And, and most importantly, I think we disarm some of the fear that comes from having people around us in whom we don't immediately see ourselves. And, and in that sense, I think, I think literature and the arts, but I'm speaking of the novel, um, are, are particularly well suited for social commentary. Thank you. David? <coughs> okay, I've written what I'm going to say because I've had flu and I didn't trust my brain to work without <laughs> writing it down. Um, I recently read a very interesting profile of the American investor Warren Buffett, who will be known to pupils of this school as the man who successfully foresaw the present economic chaos and who is best surviving it. He had made a series of rational decisions about his life, which have resulted in him becoming, if not the world's richest man, at least the world's best known and most studied rich man. Among these specific decisions, which included, for instance, a rational approach, exactly how to distribute each day the million calories a year, which he estimated he needed to keep alive and not gain weight, was the most startling of all. His decision, while still a young man, deliberately to forego culture on the grounds that it would interfere with his focus on business. Minds more intelligent than mine will already be racing ahead to realize that I am by implication congratulating the London School of Economics for organizing a weekend which raises the question of whether it is enough to be economic man or woman or whether you might thereby be missing out on ra something rather important. The Buffett case proves things neither one way nor the other. From this newspaper profile, Buffett doesn't have the air of a man who seems to suffer from a lack of outstanding human virtues. As far as I know, Buffett is inquiring, engaged, generous, sensitive alike to humans and animals, and with a fair grasp of what we might call the essentials of life and death. His spiritual life, we must assume, is as rich as yours or mine. He loves golf and sports of all kinds. Furthermore, if Buffett is rightly identified as the man who observed at the present economic crisis that you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out, then he also has a sharper wit and more vivid grasp of metaphor than many <laughs> British novelists. <laughs> <laughs> what then would I be selling, Mr. Buffett, if I tried to sell him art? Anyone who has studied this question will know that his to say the very least, vexed, and that most answers come under two headings, pleasure and meaning. When Norman Tebbit, the one-time conciliary to Margaret Thatcher, argues that a jet aircraft engine is a work of art because it is intensely beautiful in its inventiveness and intensely skilled in its execution, uh, then he is both right and wrong. An aircraft engine, however beautiful, doesn't have art's defining element of suggestiveness. Seeing one thing, we are somehow reminded of another. And in the act of seeing connections between things we have hitherto thought unconnected, we find art's second pleasure beyond pleasure, meaning. Art leaps across fact and thought and feeling, gathering them up in unexpected ways. Well, my goodness, we exclaim. I never knew I felt that. Now, many of us who like art and would miss it from our lives are reluctant to press its cause for fear we sound snobbish. 
We reject the idea that anyone who enjoys art is somehow, somehow superior to those who either, through no fault of their own, have no access to formal storytelling or to stylized representation, or who, having seen and heard it, positively dislike it. And we're also conscious in the narrative arts of just how peculiar and outrageous our basic claim is, that by making things up, by telling what are essentially lies, we may reach to something which we believe to be a superior truth. And yet maybe it is significant that in the same newspaper, the most evolved economic man of our time, Warren Buffett, describes a life imprisoned by routine, which most of us would be reluctant to live, however astonishing its benefits. Each day he gets up at the same time, each day he wears the same clothes, each day he eats the same food, Every day he checks the same indicators. Every day he makes the same calls. At the end of the day, he does his accounts. The groove he has cut through life may be deep, but it is also narrow. Wouldn't you wish, living such a life, occasionally to reflect life's own wild unpredictability? Nothing we expect happens, after all, and a lot we don't expect does with a little answering unpredictability of your own. Can golf alone provide that? <laughs> In short, wouldn't you want to get up and look around you? Discovery through art is, of course, by its nature, different from discovery through science or discovery through economics, if indeed you may say anything ever has been discovered through economics. <laughs> However... Careful, careful. <laughs> If we judge scientific discovery by what it tells us that is new, then I'm not sure that the criteria of great art are all that different. Because art is produced socially, out of the society it's created in, or, and in my own favoured forms, collaboratively, it has never occurred to me that its meanings can be anything but social, in their implications at least. I'm bewildered by anyone who does not ask of a work of art what exactly is being said here. You may think that this is an obvious line of inquiry, particularly in the moral arts, and yet it's extraordinary how seldom you hear that fundamental question being asked, and further, how reluctant experts from other disciplines are to look to the arts when considering society. Will Hutton, an economic journalist in the middle of the 1990s, produced a book called The State We're In, which sought to reveal the shortcomings of monetarist economics. It was, in its way, a perfectly good book, popular and influential, rightly seeking to condemn the short-term rigors of treating people purely as wealth producers, damning those who aren't and elevating those who are. And yet it seemed bizarre, to say the least, with the benefit of hindsight, to write a book claiming to be a critique of Thatcherism, which at no point mentioned that by far the most searching and important questions had already been dramatized. At the time, and while the phenomenon was current, in television series like The Boys from the Black Stuff, in stage plays like Serious Money, and in films like My Beautiful Laundrette, each of which used language and imagery 10,000 times richer and, yes, more suggestive than Will Hutton's sapless journalistic prose. None of this is to say that art is exclusively social or political. Of course it isn't. You do not say everything that is said to be said about Francis Bacon by talking about Auschwitz or nuclear war, but you do say something. 
So the only drawback for those of us who are taken specifically to be political writers is that we are condescended to, as though our work were only politics and not art. Somehow the British still feel it, find, find it hard, even after Shaw, even after Orwell, to admit that something might be both, and valuable as both. A direct consequence of writing fiction about public matters is that you may find yourself from time to time on the news pages of national newspapers. When The Guardian chose to preview my latest play at the National Theatre, Gethsemane, by running a front page story under the headline, Hair Excoriates New Labour, then I thought first of the hundred other playwrights waking that morning, opening their guardians, and perfectly justified in asking, who the hell cares whether hair excoriates new labor or not? Why is that news? They would have my sympathy. But my second feeling was that the story told you so very little about the play itself. By treating a work of art as though it were intended solely as a work of journalism, the story was able to infer an attitude. It was able even to surmise an opinion. But it was not, at any level, able to evoke the living world of the play. Opinions, said Thomas Mann, lie around in the street. Anyone may pick them up. Plays, thank goodness, are not quite so casually acquired. Well, there we are. My own feeling is that art is becoming even more valuable at a time when communication is so facile in both senses. We live today in the West in what is increasingly a journalistic culture. Although in our private relations, we still treat our families and friends as if they were admirable and complex. From personal encounter, we know them to be kind and decent and interesting. Nevertheless, in our public attitudes, we make few such assumptions about people we don't know. All politicians are corrupt, all professionals are self-interested, all workers are idle, all immigrants are scroungers, all films and plays are produced by people not as gifted as the people who make their living discussing them. If I'd written it... <laughs> if I'd written it, I wouldn't have written it like that. If I were running the country, it wouldn't be like this. Attitudes of easy superiority, of cartoon and contempt, permeate our newspapers, our television, and our internet. Indeed, all three often consist of little else. Individual human beings get described, bundled up, and dismissed. The gap between what people are and what they are treated as at work and in public discourse has never been wider. Unless we are careful, we will start taking people at journalistic estimates. Art, which considers people as people, which at its best grants them their whole humanity and their contradictions, seems to me finally invaluable and most of all refreshing. That is why I don't envy Warren Buffett. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you were as struck by this bizarre Buffett phenomenon as I was. I read and reviewed the, the Snowball, which is that book that and you did, I mean, he is splendid in a certain sort of way. He gave away $30 billion um, and gave it away in a rather modest way, saying, I don't know how to give away money, so I'm going to give it to someone who does know how to spend it. But nonetheless, you can't help thinking there's more to life than burger and chips and cherry Coke, which he has every day um, for every meal. Which is, you're just left speechless about it, really. Anyway, um, uh, as uh, you said, the people who write about books and plays and more intelligent than those who write them, so we'll move to someone more intelligent now. Um, <laughs> Boyd Tonkin, book editor of The Independent. 
Thank you very much, Howard. Um, uh, and um, I'm glad to say after that, that blast at um, uh, the media and uh, uh, David's wonderful use of journalists as, as a pure term of abuse. It's very good to, to remember on this platform that, that he and I, although he probably doesn't know, know it, um, share a huge admiration for someone who taught us both an enormous amount about how to connect literature and society, how to think about the relationships between art and the social processes around it, and how to come to non-trivial, non-reductive judgments about uh, that always complex and shifting relationship, and that's uh, Raymond Williams. Um, I wanted to rem remember someone else, actually. Um, uh, a former, not only a former student at this institution, but for more than a decade a teacher as well, uh, someone who died just a few weeks ago and whom I, I knew, although not as well as I would have liked, and that's uh, Sir Bernard Crick, who not only, of course, the biographer of Orwell, uh, but also the man who, in an act of um, singular generosity and farsightedness, put the revenues from the royalties of that, that wonderful biography towards the foundation of the George Orwell Prize for Political <coughs> Writing, uh, a, a, a tremendous uh, creation, and one that uh, specifically seeks to overcome uh, the disjunction between uh, the literature of social commentary uh, and um, uh, the literature of high artistic uh, endeavor. It's a prize that is thriving, it's just actually announced uh, um, uh, the candidates for this year, which you should uh, check out on its website. And now, since we, we've also been talking about George Bernard Shaw, obviously a pioneer in the, uh, the use of literature as a platform and a spearhead for social investigation, for uh, the indictment of the social evils uh, of uh, the time and for the attempt to um, uh, uh, rectify them. Um, uh, faced with the memory of the, this um, titanic figure, I'm going to tell you a very trivial story about him. Uh, there was a time when he was allegedly uh, talking to uh, the actress Beatrice Campbell, uh, who was known uh, as uh, Mrs. Patrick Campbell, her stage name. And Mrs. Pat is supposed to have said to Shaw, Shaw, we should have a child together. It would, it would have my beauty and your brains. And... Um, Shaw replied, uh, that would be a bit risky. What if it turned out the other way around? <laughs> um, and uh, now that's uh, maybe quite an ungallant thing, thing to say to a woman who was noted for her wit and repartee, but I think it's uh, quite relevant to the subject of this evening's discussion. Shaw, of course, was the heir of um, 19th century naturalism, uh, of a, a form of art in uh, fiction in drama in uh, the visual arts that sought to explain the massive um, impersonal forces behind individual behavior, uh, which sought, uh, if you like, to combine the, um, the beauty and poetry of the creative imagination with the brains of uh, social investigation. And of course, when uh, it uh, worked, it worked supremely well in the novels such as uh, Zola's Germinal or The Earth in, uh, or in this side of the channel in Hardy's Tess or Jude the Obscure. 
Um, however, uh, when the, uh, the beauty and the brains didn't quite match up, uh, you had uh, a tradition that became, in some hands, rather stifling, rather arid, uh, a, a tradition of um, the accumulation rather than the transformation of social observation and of social commentary. And um, what is interesting is that this uh, perpetual tension between, if you like, uh, um, the reportage, the documentary side of the literature of social commentary and its more <coughs> self-consciously aesthetic, uh, creative, uh, um, uh, autonomous side has basically continued to this day. And I think the crucial uh, thing to say about this is that it is not a quarrel that should ever end. But if you like the uh, perpetual push and pull between form and content, between uh, the material discovered through investigation, uh, through the desire to represent in its complete and rounded form the reality of your times uh, and the uh, artistic means that you use to do that. It, it is, uh, this is a, um, a perpetually fluctuating relationship. And um, it's very interesting thinking about the controversies that it developed early on. Uh, uh, if you look, uh, for instance, at um, the essays of Virginia Woolf in the early uh, 1920s when she is quite vehemently attacking the social documentarists of the age. She's attacking H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, um, Arnold Bennett, John Galsworthy, saying essentially that this is simply dead material, that, 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 is, that is simply the, the, the inert description of reality without any animating without a, any truly vitalizing force behind it. And uh, those, in, those essays were very influential on me at the time when I took um, uh, the claims of high modernism more seriously than I subsequently did. And it was precisely the, the influence of uh, uh, people like Raymond Williams that uh, taught me to, to look at those claims with a slightly more uh, skeptical air. But what's, for me, what's fascinating 80 years, years on is how much that distance appears to have shrunk. If we now go back and read uh, Virginia Woolf, she appears almost uh, as vivid uh, uh, and concrete a social commentator as the novelist that, that she's attacking. I went back to Mrs. Dalloway and I found, for instance, that, that uh, uh, Clarissa Dalloway's former suitor, um, Peter Walsh, uh, is full of little observations about uh, London immediately after the First World War. But he notices, for instance, the, the rise in the proportion of women wearing makeup uh, uh, after the war compared to before the war. Uh, you could read 10 very substantial social histories of that time without coming across that observation. And uh, at this distance, a distance of 70 or 80 years, Virginia Woolf, who began almost as a militant aesthete, a militant champion of um, subconscious forces in the shaping of fiction, now appears to be much closer to the uh, writers that she was attacking. And in her later career, when she was writing a novel such as uh, uh, The Years, I think she's, uh, she has come to this conclusion herself. Uh, and it is a novel much closer to the spirit of British um, social observation, social commentary. Um, I'll end with, with one 
platform, one particular uh, um, connection which I think exemplifies this unending tension and does so uh, extremely powerfully. And that is the, the curious friendship between H.G. Wells and Henry James, um, whom you might think of as chalk and cheese incarnate. One is the activist, the other is the aesthete. One is the suburban campaigner for good causes, uh, the great uh, um, uh, evangelist for the scientific and progressive worldview. Uh, the other, the, uh, the rather um, ethereal socialite, the haunter of uh, dinner parties and smart salons uh, in London. And yet they admired each other. They admired each other greatly, uh, precisely, I think, because they identified that each was doing something rather strange and wonderful that the other could not have done. Uh, and then, sadly, dramatically, there came a moment where the friendship virtually fell apart just towards the end of Henry James's life. H.D. Um, Wells wrote a story called Boone, which parodies a, um, a writer called George Boone, who, who is a quite markedly based on Henry James, uh, and in particular mocks uh, the famous uh, um, late style of Henry James. You know, there's the old joke, uh, beloved of English lecturers everywhere, that um, Henry James's career can be divided into three, uh, James I, James II, and the old pretender. Um, and um, <coughs> in Boone, Wells creates this writer and compares his style to um, a hippopotamus trying to pick up a pea in the corner of its cage. And um, as you might imagine, Henry James did not really appreciate this particular representation of, of, of his uh, artistic principles. Um, their friendship was stretched to breaking point in a series of letters which are an absolutely brilliant demonstration of the uh, distance between the literature, literature conceived of as social commentary and literature conceived of as uh, a self-enclosed artistic pursuit aiming at a higher truth beyond the documentary, beyond the sphere of reportage and social action. And it's a great fight. Um, they trade blows. They both land punches. And I think honours are about even at the end. But uh, I'll end by just quoting the, the virtually the end of the correspondence when Henry James is replying to uh, Wells' claim that, that uh, it is substance, it is content, it is, it is meaning, and in particular social meaning, that defines the significance of art. And James turns this on its head, and he says, it is art that makes life, makes interest, makes importance. And I know of no substitute whatever for the force and beauty of its process. If I were Boone, I would say that any pretense of such a substitute is helpless and hopeless humbug. But I wouldn't be Boone for the world, and I'm only yours faithfully, Henry James. Oh. Uh, it's a wonderfully moving little coda to a very bitter dispute. So I think the quarrel continues. The quarrel continues between the social documentarist, the commentator, the reporter in literature, and the self-conscious artist. And the great thing is that this quarrel is often not conducted between separate human beings, but within individual human beings. So I'll end there.
Thank you. <coughs> well, I'm going to uh, throw this uh, open to you in just uh, a second, and there are microphones um, so you can be thinking about what you'd like to say. But I'm going to use the chair's privilege just to ask one question of my own, picking up on something that David said about the contrast, if you like, between uh, Will Hutton's sapless prose, a phrase um, I shall remember. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward now to seeing Will again, um, <laughs> to quote that. And, uh, but, but you rightly pointed to drama and indeed television drama, which engaged with um, the sort of Thatcher view of the world and Homer economics. But I guess one thing that struck me in um, my novel reading, and I guess this was brought home to me rather forcibly when I had to read 110 of them uh, in the sort of force-feeding mode at, in the booker, is how little engagement there is with between most British novelists and uh, commercial business life, and especially indeed with the city, uh, which is on our doorstep and which uh, we now know has the capacity both to make a lot of people very rich and to impoverish all of us. Um, and it, it's hard to think of uh, any British equivalent of the bonfire of the vanities, for example, which does engage very directly with um, Wall Street. Um, I exclude Mosin from this criticism because in the first half, uh, at least of the reluctant fundamentalist, was for me extremely painful memory of my years at McKinsey, which I share, we both shared that background, and it was painfully accurate description of uh, the McKinsey sort of method and training. But David, do you think it's fair to say that British novelists and playwrights have not engaged terribly much with the world of finance and business? Mm, uh, I don't think it's true. I, can't, I mean, I can't speak to the novel because I don't know enough about the novel. I know about the performing arts. And what Boyd is talking about, which is the precious idea of yourself as an artist and therefore, uh, uh, you know, in, in the sense that Virginia Woolf we wanted to be in an isolated room with the windows closed, for a playwright that's a very hard thing to do because by, by of necessity it's a collaborative process, so of necessity you're out there in rehearsal and actors are saying to you, um, I'm not very convinced by this and I don't think this matches my experience and hold on a sec, it wasn't like that when this happened to me. This is, you know, so that you get a lot of rough knocks as a playwright. Those playwrights who wish to behave, and I'm not saying it in any derogatory way, I'm saying it to take the high art route, like Samuel Beckett, for instance, have to insist that every single performance of their work is identical. And indeed, the estate will sue you if you don't produce the play in exactly the same way every time. And the second thing about Beckett was that it also meant that he was deeply uninterested in the audience, even if he, he never attended a performance of his own work. And he, if he were directing the play, he would direct the dress rehearsal and then say, well, it's time for me to go now. Um, so the theatre isn't re really a very friendly place for someone who has a very high art view. And the cinema, God knows, is an even less friendly place for someone who has a high art view of things. Um, but no, I, I, in terms of subject matter, no, I would have thought the theatre 
Um, well, Serious Money is the obvious example of a play that um, rather comprehensively. But it's true that, what, you know, having myself done a lot of plays that are researched, where you spend a lot of time learning about something that you don't know about, be it the Chinese Revolution or the privatization of the railways or um, the Church of England or some subject or indeed the legal system, which is a, a huge thing to try and learn about, um, the two subjects that are intimidating are science. You know, clearly there, there are very few major works of fiction on scientific themes because of the difficulty of understanding what's happening in the discipline. And to a degree, I would think that was also true of uh, finance, though maybe it was simpler than it looked. Either <laughs> <laughs> of you want to point on that? Um, yes, it's interesting, because I, I, I actually wrote an article on precisely how, how British novelists failed the city in the sense of failing to produce a, a, a consistent and profound portrait of it. And um, it's uh, very interesting because I talked to some people with a lot of city experience and, and they were saying, well, if I can't understand the sort of um, wizardry and alchemy with derivatives that's been going on, but then how can you expect a sort of mainstream novelist to, to, to make it uh, really uh, vivid uh, and accessible? But uh, it's true, it is, it is a failure. So one, one, someone who's, who, who made this point very forcefully is um, the great historian of the, the city, David Kiniston, um, who said to me that he thought that looking at, at doing his, hist his history of the city, looking at particular periods, he thought there was, there was a gap in the imaginative record for recent periods, in that the novels were not there or they were not good enough some of the novels that have come up have tended to, to, to come from people who had um, a fairly uh, short experience of um, relatively low-level work, uh, um, as it were, in the, uh, in the infantry ranks of finance. Um, there's an interesting recent novel called Starfishing by Nicola Monaghan, who worked on the London Futures Exchange in the late 90s, I think. And that, that's, uh, that's good, but it's limited because it's just a small corner of the city that, that she knew. It's not the, the, the big, rounded picture. I do happen to know that, that someone... Um, <coughs> it's, it's always sort of uh, hard to, to, um, uh, to give an advance billing to a novel that, that might not come out for a year or two, but, but uh, I have a fairly, fairly good idea that... that um, uh, John Lanchester, who is a very good novelist and someone who writes interesting essays on precisely on finance and culture, it wouldn't surprise me too much if when his next novel comes out, it has as a fairly major theme precisely that subject. Mason, if I got you uh, a job at St. Goldman Sachs, would you take on this challenge? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I still dabble in, in work. To, in addition to floundering around in, in fiction. And uh, yeah, I do it for a simple reason. is uh, It helps you know, to support oneself, really, having a job. And, uh, <laughs> Just write that down. But it's also, <laughs> it's also, it's also good research, and, um, and it's very interesting. Uh, I was talking to Daniel Moynihan. He had a book launch <laughs> in New York on Monday, and I was there, and we were, on, we were on the stage together. And he said something which was very interesting. He said... 
Um, he's a farmer in part down in uh, uh, in southern Punjab in Pakistan. He's got an amazing collection of short stories coming out here in a few months called In Other Rooms and Other Wonders. And he talked about how being a businessman, because that's what a farmer is, being a businessman um, shapes his ability to characterize and understand people. He's always trying to transact with them and take advantage of them. And, and that is a wonderful point of view, a place to be when you want to understand them and you want to write about them. I mean, for me, I think the, 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 the two most interesting tr transgressive things for me and the, uh, you know, are, I think there's a, a relative absence of the spiritual in our public political space, which is not to say politicize religion, but the questions that religion deals with, you know, I will die one day, um, that sort of thing. Uh, somehow we shunt that out of our mainstream political discourse and leave it in, in these different fringes where I think it does all kinds of mischief and we probably need to deal more with. So there's a, there's a political spiritual trans, uh, you know, transgression I'm very interested in. And the other, of course, is, um, is our transactional relationship to one another, uh, you know, business, jobs, finance, whatever, in art. Uh, because although you know, writers, dramatists, filmmakers are always, you know, they're, they're creating <coughs> characters, um, uh, there, you know, there is a, a, for me, there's always been a sense of, of uh, well, a hint of escapism in the fact that, that most people who read my books or, or most people I know who, who you know, read novels, etc., tend to have regular jobs. And most of what's written about in those novels isn't really about regular jobs. Escapism isn't, isn't a bad thing. I mean, it's, it's what I do for a living in a way. I, when you imagine stories, you are, you know, you are escaping. But, but there's some meat there uh, that, that either we presume is boring or we intentionally choose lives we don't investigate it or something. But I, I really do feel there's some meat there in figuring out, you know, we, we pretend that the stuff we do when we go home from work is our lives. But statistically, in terms of how much of our life is spent working, it isn't entirely true. And so as we try to figure out you know, what we are in this increasingly kind of corporatized, transactional world, it's, it's, it's something that really attracts me. Um, and, 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 and the difficulty is, one, I, can, I think, as you say, getting in past the foot soldier level so you can, you can talk about it. But the other one is, is making something of it that feels like art and that is at the same time seductive um, and makes someone want to engage with it, which, which I think many of us who are trying to write about this stuff are, are really struggling with. How do you do that? Thanks. Let me uh, open it up. Yeah, uh, woman in red, uh, yeah, ish, dark red. That's it. Red-ish. Yeah, that, that would sum me up slightly. Not really. Fol following your question, um, Mr. Davis, I also um, was provoked slightly by something you said on Monday in another talk I came to in the Old Theatre when you suggested that only three people read the Financial Times to poor Gillian Tett, who is... She uh, said it. No, you said it. No, she uh, said it first. Okay, she said yes. it first. <laughs> she, said, she, she said, said my it. columns are only read by three people. I think she sort of meant that only understood by three people. All right. <laughs> my, my, my point is that, you know, your question about why aren't books written about the city, why isn't fiction written about the city, you know, Carol Churchill did a wonderful series of money 20 years ago, 
Well, I was told by a leading literary agent five years ago, no one is interested. You know, there are three stories about the city or Wall Street, and they've all been told. There's, you know, Working Girl, there's Wall Street, and all these films were made 20 years ago. And, you know, the other thing that Julian Tett said that also made me think a lot was that, you know, elites not only control the means of production, as Mr. Marx might have said, but they control the rhetoric, you know, what is said and what is not said. And, you know, all of you on the panel, you know, your voices are heard, your plays are performed at the National Theatre, you know, your books are published. Um, you know, perhaps if people had wanted to write about the city, they wouldn't have been published had they been critical. You remember Vince Cable saying on Monday he criticised the city. He was told he was unpatriotic. He was told to stop it. <laughs> so well, I'd like your, your comments on that. This, uh, well, just briefly before I hand over to the others, but it, it is true. I wrote an article in, in the Financial Times saying rough, roughly this about two years ago. And I received, I think, nine uh, novels about the city, all self-published, which <laughs> was interesting. Um, they, they, they'd written them and they'd published them. They're not great, actually. Um, <laughs> so I can yes. sort of see why they weren't published. But nonetheless, there is a, there is a production line there, but it isn't perhaps... Did anyone want to... Well, on? yes. Uh, obviously, we all know... One thing we all know about publishers is that they are terrible creatures and victims of fashion. So I have to say, if you think there's been an absence of city novels so far... Wait a couple of years, and you'll be <laughs> screaming for the tide to stop. <laughs> thank you for previewing my next book. Can I say one thing on this? Yeah, sure. you know, the other thing is, you know, to, uh, if, if you live in this world, and I've, I've lived in, in, in the world of business part-time and dabbled in and out and moved in and out of different not writing, it does something to you. You know, if you stay, the foot soldiers who get out and write um, are probably young enough to... to go on with what it is that they want to do. But once you've done it for 20 or 30 years, um, and in my experience, because I have a lot of friends who dreamed of writing, and I see them 15, 20 years now out of, out of school, and, uh, and something has happened. You know, they find it very hard to dream aloud anymore. And they find it very hard to engage in the play, which is what basically, you know, we're up to. And uh, uh, you know, so I think, yes, the means of production may be shuttered, although having written a novel which, is, which, is, uh, which takes these things on and is, I think, quite critical, I didn't find it difficult to get published. But, um, but I do think living in the world that allows you to write about business and being somebody who can write are perhaps at least partly incompatible. And as your life progresses and your mind settles into the groove, you know, the Warren Buffett groove, what's left of you uh, is no longer a storyteller. Uh, a couple of points here. We'll take a couple yeah, of... Well, yeah. right. Firstly, uh, I'm just wondering why there's not a woman on the panel. Uh, that's the first. Secondly, I don't see why we need a novel about business. I mean, T.S. Eliot worked for an insurance firm and never wrote about business. Wallace Stevens worked for an insurance... Well, he worked for a bank, I'm sorry, for Lloyd's. Uh, Wallace Stevens worked for an insurance company. He never wrote about business. All right, that, that's the second. Number three, uh, I think Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway is a very contemporary uh, novel. I think, she's, I think she's right where it is today. I don't see her as being desiccated at all. Um, and I think the way they did it in the hours was a great injustice to Virginia Woolf. I think they should do Mrs. Dalloway as, Mrs. as Virginia Woolf wrote it. Finally, Henry James. Henry James, uh, I don't see 
what, 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 the, what the point is of deriding Henry James. Henry James was a genius, the first psychological writer. He wasn't a parody of himself. He wasn't the great pretender toward the end. He was always a great psychological writer. And he knew Virginia Woolf when she was a young girl and encouraged her. Thank you. Take a next one here. Uh, in blue. I think uh, whether you like it or not, you've, you've opened up a, a hornet's nest for anyone who's ever taught English because one of the extreme commentaries of the last 20 years about uh, English literacy works is that uh, looking at A-level and even GCSE works is that our students are very good at being able to write a dialogue, but are very poor in being able to put it in context. And when there is an author who publishes a put it in context, it becomes exceptional. And we've seen this in James Joyce and in Zadie Smith. And these, these are the authors that stand out of being able to write about the world around us, regardless of whether it's a city or not. And this is actually being portrayed now of those evaluating the younger authors, even down to primary school level, is that the teaching of how to write and the ability of a child to actually look at the world around them has become less and less with the introduction, for example, of television. The ability to imagine and write that as an imaginative writing has diminished, but that has not actually been evaluated properly. And Offset has picked this up very, very frequently that this is actually a deficiency in how English is taught. Dialogue is good amongst our younger generation. Putting it in context is very poor. So I think you've actually opened up a hornet's nest here. It's not just about the city. It's actually we are deficient across the board in over the 100,000 titles published each year, which is the official figure that the authors who put it in context stand out. And I think it actually comes down to how English is taught and the deficiency in how people look, are expressing themselves partly to blame due to the electronic revolution. Context is the issue, not dialogue. Thank you. There was somebody up there yeah, on the, uh, on the um, aisle there, about halfway up. And then I got you two over there. Yes, sir. Having just completed a program at uh, Westminster, um, one could uh, study derivatives, and I believe this fine institution has a similar summer school program. So I think it's not really doom and gloom in the sense of learning financial instruments. It's just perhaps the point of, as the gentleman mentioned, in this uh, electronic culture, we have a situation of uh, my ever-changing moods, and it would be extremely difficult to um, harness uh, these conditions and put them down on paper and then on top of that put in a plot. But uh, just to conclude, I think it is all possible because for better or for worse, we can learn anything we want to know about in today's world, which is, of course, a, a good thing. And then just a final question, please, to the gentleman. Um, the millionaire, uh, the slumdog millionaire was a book. And uh, could you just say a few words on that being uh, particularly cognizant for all of us as a social piece of social commentary against an electronic age. Thank you. Thanks. We'll take those two over there and then we'll put it back to the panel. Yeah, two in red. Okay, this is a bit of a tangent. Um, the, uh, the link between literature and the financial world is a bit tenuous at present, but literature has always been associated with politics. 
um, in some way or the other. And how far do you think, in the world of today, being writers, political correctness is relevant? And do you think it acts in any way as a censor? Um, you have to be careful. Um, Thank you. And then, please. Um, do you think the current financial crisis is going to have an effect on the number of books published, perhaps, and the publishing industry in general? Thanks. Well, um, if, if I could just answer the first question, which is that um, we, we do have uh, a view at the LSE that we should have diversity of presenters, but we don't have a view that we have to have uh, a woman or indeed a man on every individual panel. Um, could I invite political correctness, David? Uh, well, I first defend our film of the hours, which uh, I, you know, one of the things that happened as a result of that film was that Mrs. Dalloway went to number one mm. in the bestseller list in the LA Times, in the New York Times, and in the Sunday Times. And more, some hundreds of thousands of people who would never have read Virginia Woolf. And I find the accusation of injustice to Virginia Woolf profoundly rude, actually. I, I, I resent it deeply. I did not transvestize it. <laughs> there was no transvestizing in the novel. <laughs> Everybody kept their original gender. And honestly, okay. Okay. I, please be as rude as you like. Um, political correctness. <laughs> <laughs> Boyd, Henry James. Henry James? I don't think I was deriding Henry James. I think I was doing quite the opposite, actually. I mean, I think he's a. Um, I was, honestly, I, I was quoting a bad joke by bad teachers. Please. Um, but. Um, no, uh, Henry James, as I said, when he's, when he's arguing with. with um, H.G. Uh, Wells precisely uh, about the, the role of uh, social commentary in literature. Um, he's a wonderfully vigorous defender of the high art approach to fiction, not as an evasion of reality, but as, as a, a basically a route to an even deeper and, and fuller uh, reality. And um, certainly, the point, I suppose the point I was trying to make is that as you acquire historical distance from even the most aesthetically refined writers, they become decade by decade to seem very much the products and the, the painters of their age. And uh, this goes for James as much as for, for anyone else. Um, Excuse me, I think you're in danger of uh, making this um, a less satisfactory experience for the rest of the audience than we want it to be. Okay. If you look at uh, the great James, e even in his uh, relatively late period, uh, uh, novels like the, um, the Wings of the Dove, um, The Golden Bowl, um, The Ambassadors, uh, um, obviously there is an intense uh, psychological richness and subtlety there, but also uh, uh, underlying it all, of course, a devastating social critique of um, the uh, high society that brought um, American money and European aristocracy together and all the confusions and corruptions that resulted 
from that uh, necessary uh, marriage. Um, and um, I think, in an odd way, from the distance of a century or almost a century, uh, these days James seems almost as much a social novelist as H.G. Wells. Thank you. Um, who else would like to come in this way? Oh, sorry, there was one question, we, one we didn't pick up. I know, boys, you might like to comment on the issue of context and teaching of English. Um, that, if I, if I capture you correctly, you thought the way English was taught was making it more difficult for people to write novels with dialogue in context. Was that roughly? Yes, I, I mean, I actually think that we're slightly perhaps a, a, a better off that there are still very many novelists who have a grasp of context as well as um, the minutiae of social behavior as demonstrated in, um, in, in dialogue. So um, I think um, the novel as a form is uh, far from being at the end of its tether. Anyone else want to come in before we wind up? We'll just get, yeah, one. Uh, fifth row. Hi there. Yeah, I was just interested actually to um, pick up on something that David said about um, it was just a phrase that you used actually narrative arts. And I was just wondering whether instead of saying literature as such, we should say narrative arts. Or I think some at the moment I'm growing up with quite a lot of people uh, consider you know things like graphic novels other forms as, as, as much as that as a novel, which we've talked a lot about. I'm just wondering what the panel think of that. David? Graphic art? Um, goodness. I, I, as you know, my love is for film and uh, theatre. That's what I understand. I think there's a confusion in people asking us, asking why um, political writers don't write about particular subjects. And it is a confusion about being half... Um, a political writer like myself, because I write about all sorts of public subjects, I, when I have done something, then producers tend to think, oh great, I can get him to do something else. Do you see? Here is somebody who doesn't think of himself in quotes as an artist. I can send him out there and get him to respond. So that, for instance, when I wrote a piece about Israel and Palestine, immediately another producer rang me up and said, now can you go and do the same thing in Northern Ireland? because it's fascinating, your technique, so can you bring it to bear on another subject, right? Similarly, when I wrote about the Chinese Revolution, a lot of people said to me, will you now write about the Russian Revolution? Now, it's almost impossible to explain that even if your approach is political or social, you are as much an artist as you know, someone whose focus is purely personal. 
and you are as much the mystery of why certain subject matter attracts you and certain other subject matter doesn't attract you is, is as profound for a political artist as it is. And so you, you don't know why. You, you, you can't explain the reason, no, that doesn't interest me. But it is true that for 15 years I have thought, people have said to me, why don't you write about what's going on in the City of London? And for 15 years I have thought, uh, no, I'm not, I don't know why, but that doesn't seem me. Now, I'm as entitled to say that as a painter who is alone in his studio all day says that. And that's the deficit, if you like. It may be a shortcoming in a political artist that they can't be what I call a short-order chef, meaning, you know, cook up any dish that you're asked to cook up by people. Um, but it, you, you can't. And the mystery of why Bacon chooses to paint the Pope and, and why the Pope is Bacon's subject, it's equally mysterious why... I got incredibly fired up with, by the Church of England. I don't know why it happens. So you're, so you're still, and at the end of it, you don't know why the subject appeals to you in such a profound way, and why you can write about it so freely, and yet some other subject completely freezes you up. And that mystery is as profound in the political artist as it is in any other artist. Yeah, I, I'd like to ask you a question, because um, I think, you know, Doing what it is you want to do, obviously, is, is uh, what I, I think all of us do in terms of the art that we, we make. But I'm curious just about the, self the censorship question and, and, and self-censorship, because for myself, I, I think I do engage in self-censorship. There, there is a sense of, not, not that I won't write about the city, uh, not at sort of that kind of a level, but um, there, is, there is in my mind the idea that I'm, you know, Playing my thing, you know, imagining stories, and out there in the world do exist <coughs> monsters, and so I don't know who they are, where they are, what they are exactly, but I sort of have this feeling that they're out there and they frighten me, and because of that, uh, I I I do engage in, you know, well, let's say I modulate how I say, how I try to say what it is that I want to say. And I'm not talking about the city right now. Um, and that's a kind of self-censorship that I, I engage on, but I think sort of artists have probably always engaged in, except for the ones who were killed very early. And, uh, <laughs> and there was a brief period recently where it appeared you know, in countries like Britain and perhaps America that one didn't have to do that. But I, I'd just be curious for you, I mean, do you, uh, do you feel that self-censorship is something that... that not in the, at, not, not at all. At all. Mm. I've never felt the slightest... Uh, I've never felt the slightest inhibition on writing about exactly what I wanted to write about. Mm. And uh, it's, no, I'm not conscious of it at all. Mm. Well, there was a point, you, you, you were almost suggesting at one point, I thought, that being a literary person with a reputation for social and political commentary could even be a trap because then you were seen yes, as being someone completely. who and it's don't comment and on this. And it's completely clear that y what is in my work that is not political and social doesn't get grabbed. When I'm complaining about The Guardian seeing it as a, seeing the, yeah. what is actually a play about you know, profound human relationships, seeing it purely as in terms of the journalistic headline that they can get out of it, I'm afraid if you write about political subjects, that's, yeah. that's what happens. Just as if you write about terrorism, that's what happens. Do, do you feel you get the, the, there's your pressure on you mostly now to sort of, uh, you know, you've done 9-11, you've done you know, should you go and do the Taliban or 7-7 exactly. I mean, seven, seven indeed? You know, <laughs> there's, there's, um, there's a little bit of that, but just as, you know, uh, as you said, I think, earlier, the, the, the idea that, you know, getting into your groove 
and doing it repeatedly, um, if that's what you want to do, there are much more lucrative ways to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you know, in a way, it's it's you know, the next thing has to still be fun, um, and it it very quickly stops being fun when you harness yourself too directly to, you know, I've identified a market, I've served it once, I can serve it again, let me, you know, whatever. Um, but that, that said, you know, there are certain things that you relate to that are part of your life that, are, that, that overlap, and so there will be similarities in topic. But um, luckily, I haven't had any pressure to do that. Um, I guess the only, the only pressure that I feel is in doing something very different. Um, the, the financial and critical success of what I do is you know, out of my hands much more. Um, so it's a, it's a little frightening to do something different. Uh, but that, I guess, it's a little bit feels when you do something that you haven't done before. Yeah. Finally, boy, do you think that there's a, there is this trap that if you it, that it's if you are engaged in social political commentary that you then get pushed into another part of the paper, <laughs> to put it put David point another way, that you then get seen as someone who's only a message uh, uh, yeah, purveyor yeah, rather yeah, than an artist. Yes, uh, as. Um, who was it said, if you want to send a message, uh, um, use Western Union. Um, and um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably it's one of those great um, Hollywood lines. But it's also true mm -hmm. that there are all sorts of ways <coughs> in which you can approach very profound social and political issues, but you can do it um, indirectly, obliquely, through the forms of allegory, of fable, uh, of myth. Um, Someone who was coming to mind as we were talking was the great Portuguese writer José Saramago, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. Uh, someone who has actually a, a background of quite profound political commitments and activism. But if you read his fiction, the, the setting and the subject seems entirely fantastic. A society in which death suddenly um, goes on strike and no one dies for six months. Um, or in Blindness, recently filmed, where, where an epic, epidemic of blindness uh, sweeps through the country. Um, or uh, uh, the uh, election day dawns and no one goes out to vote. And society uh, gradually falls to pieces. Uh, um, and uh, entirely fantastic scenarios. But all of them, uh, once you get into this mode of storytelling, profoundly embedded in the deepest questions about society, how society is constituted, how it's changed, how power perpetuates itself and how power can be challenged. So that in fact there is a spectrum of ways of dealing with, with um, uh, social questions in imaginative li literature. And uh, I think the great thing about the arts I is that um, uh, creative artists will always find new ways to address them. I think that's a good uplifting message on which to uh, conclude. Uh, thank you hugely to all the three members of the panel. for It's a rather unsocial hour on a Friday evening to be uh, chattering, but the benefit is that we can invite you all for a glass of cherry coke um, <laughs> at worst, and possibly something else um, better. Uh, before um, we do that, could I remind you that there are other events this weekend in the literary weekend. There's Michael Holroyd, there's Will Self, there's a discussion on religious defamation, and there are tickets available for some of these, and they'll be available here at 10 o'clock in the morning onwards.
conference, or I guess you probably will get in if you turn up. So we hope to see you again at other events. Thank you very much to the panel, and thank you for your time.